even a step further than that, um, in my church-going history, I've never heard this passage of Scripture taught Ever. I don't have it in my notes anywhere. I don't have any, uh, any personal notes. In my time reading the Bible, just with my own time alone with God, um, I, I know I've read through this because I've read through the book of Matthew several times, but there's nothing that just stuck out to me to say, um, I remember how God spoke to me through that part. I remember teaching that or hearing that spoken. So um, tonight, the, the staff was fully aware of that, and they said, let's give that to the youth pastor, and we'll just let him flounder around, and we'll just take it uh, not easy. Um, and, and so I, I, I was excited for the challenge to do this. I, I, I thought, man, how cool it would be to, to be able to just um, dig into it and kind of unearth some of the things behind it. And if you look at the book of Matthew, there's so much in the book of Matthew. And so we've got a whole lot to talk about um, tonight in a, in a very small amount of time. And so... Um, if you've been over here long um, on Wednesday nights with the adult Bible study, teenagers, you're not really aware of this right now, um, but y'all have been going through the book of Matthew, and um, Wednesday night has just been uh, really interesting to hear on the back end of this uh, of how different um, staff members have taught it and led it, and some nights you'll have discussion on the table, some nights you won't, and um, there's always just something to talk about from the book of Matthew, and so in the Book of Matthew chapter 17 is where we are tonight, and we come to this moment where Jesus is questioned, or rather it's Peter is his question for Jesus about whether or not Jesus pays the temple tax. And so um, as outsiders looking in on this, we can easily see uh, temple tax as something in the Bible that just kind of sounds like this optional, maybe I'll pay it, maybe I won't, sort of religious donation thing where you kick in if you feel like it. Um, but right here, it's not. It's absolutely not an optional thing. If you lived in this society at this time, this is something that you had to do. It's required. And so what this passage is trying to do is it's feeling out how Jewish is Jesus. Say that three times fast. It's feeling out just how Jewish Jesus is. Is he still connected to all this stuff that he comes from, or has he blown that up entirely and he's bringing in something new? And so in this tiny little passage of Scripture tonight, Matthew 17, verse uh, 24 through uh, the end of it, um, we're going to be talking about two things. Um, something that is both simultaneously a very small question of, is Jesus going to pay this temple tax? But also a huge, much larger, super hyper important theological question that has implications for understanding the entirety of the Bible and where you and I fit in as Christians if we're going to be on board with this whole Christianity thing. And so let's read this chapter or this passage tonight together and then we'll pray and ask for God to lead us and to have our attention tonight. So Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. I want to underline that or highlight that for later, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free, or some translations might say exempt. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, there you find a shekel. 
take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight, and uh, we ask right here that your Holy Spirit would fill this place, that you would have our affection and our attention here tonight, that the enemy would have no say in this place, um, that you'd clear all distractions, and Lord, you help us to focus on you and your word here in this place tonight. Um, so God, we thank you for your word, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in order to understand anything that is going on in uh, Matthew, we have to understand uh, just a few things about the book of Matthew in general, right? Can we, can we all agree that? So just I'll throw a free one to you real quick. Who wrote the book of Matthew? Anybody know? Well, Matthew, hey, pat yourself on the back. Congratulations, you guys are really, you're just a really good crowd. So Matthew wrote the book of Matthew, and he was a Jewish guy, uh, and he gives this account of his own conversion in chapter 9 which is, is, is really pretty astonishing. He, he worked for the Roman government. He was a tax collector, so basically a sellout and a scam artist. Think of the person that you dislike the most in your life. That's Matthew, right? Nobody liked this guy at all. He always was just looking to get rich quick, and, and nobody liked him. And then Jesus comes along, and he has this incredible transformation, and he goes on to write this amazing uh, transitional account of the life and the work of Jesus. And when you look at it, it really bridges the gap between all the old stuff back here and, and all the new stuff in, in the New Testament. And so it's, it's really interesting to see how that works. So Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew, was written to primarily a Jewish audience. Um, it's written to people who would have just been marinating deeply in Jewish law and, and history and prophecy. And just they would have been extremely steeped in all of that. And so one of the things that's both really exciting and also really tricky about the book of Matthew is you can just get lost deep in the rabbit hole of um, the background. There's so much culturally and historically that's happening here, um, but it can also be really tricky and really challenging because sometimes the meaning of the text isn't always right here on the surface, or I should say sometimes the implication of the text isn't always very obvious right here on the surface. And so here's what we have. We have the Old Testament, um, which is everything in the first part of the Bible that what we call the Old Testament. And you've got this in the very beginning where God makes everything. He makes the world. He makes all the things we can see, all the things that we can't see. Um, any movie fans in the house? You just love movies? That's me. I'm, I love movies. A good, give me a good TV series. Give me a good movie, and I'm all about it. Um, one of the things I really love about movies is, is the score. Like, usually there's a great soundtrack. If it's a good movie, if it's in your top ten list, chances are it has a good soundtrack or a good score that goes along with it. And when you're watching that movie, there, if it's done well, uh, the score kind of moves that movie along. And so when you see uh, in your movie, and you're watching it, and then all of a sudden you hear that major note and that beautiful, peaceful, calm, tranquil music switch, and the minor note comes in, or, or, or the diminished chords come in, you know something terribly wrong is about to happen. Like you know everything is about to shift, and what was once good and right, something bad is about to happen in that movie. So here in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, everything's perfect. The music is beautiful. It's great. And then Genesis 3 comes in, and everything just turns sideways, and it just looks like everything's going to fall apart. The score changes. The music changes. And everything looks like it will be ruined forever. But God, in his vast mercy, immediately begins this redemptive process. 
and, and he starts to work in and through different people in really unique ways to, to build what is this predicted kind of culminating event where everything's going to get redeemed and fixed. And we see that all throughout Scripture, including the very beginning. So, for example, in the, in the, early in the book of Genesis, God plucks this guy, uh, Abram, out of the clear blue sky, and he says to Abram, hey, I'm going to make a deal with you, uh, and no matter what you do, all the good stuff you do, all the dumb stuff you do, whatever it is, I'm going to make you a great nation, and all the other nations are going to be blessed by this great nation. And so it's like, oh, okay, cool. God is building a people unto himself. And then I don't know, it's probably around 600 years or so later, you fast forward and God makes another deal with a man named Moses. It's on the back end of this whole Exodus cross the Red Sea thing. And if side note, if you're with us on Sundays, we're going through the Ten Commandments, and it's been fun to just walk through that as well. And this is kind of where that take, takes place. And he makes this conditional deal with Moses. And he says, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And if you do these dumb things, well, there's going to be punishment. There's going to be consequences for you. If you disobey me, I'm going to punish you. If you obey me, I'm going to bless you. But either way, whatever you do, all the nations are going to know that I am the real God and that you are my people. And so then you fast forward about 400 years or so, and you've got the second king of Israel, uh, a guy the Bible will call a man after God's, God's own heart. Anybody know his name? King David, right? So King David comes into play, and God speaks to David, and again, makes this this time an unconditional promise to, to King David, and he says, David, whatever you do, whether you are an idiot or not, and just be honest, sometimes he was a big, he just made terrible, terrible choices. Uh, whatever you choose to do, I'm going to make this great kingdom, and I'm going to make this great line of kings and I'm going to use your line to make all of this happen. And through your line, this great king is going to come who's going to make all this redemption possible. And so I'm dragging in a whole bunch of, of prophecy and stuff that will happen later in the Old Testament. But as you uh, flip through here, there's so much that starts to happen. And then you look at uh, near the end of the Old Testament, uh, the northern and southern kingdoms of, of the Hebrew people start to fall and collapse. And uh, it ultimately ends on something that looks really hopeless politically. And you're just like, there is nothing here. It's just going to end terribly. But even in the middle of all that, there is this language in the Old Testament that's promising this hope. That there is this one who will come. There is this Messiah who is supposed to come. Now, I get it. You're in here and you're thinking, man, that's a whole lot of background. And, and you're probably cross-eyed by now, and I'm sorry for that. Um, but that's by design. So we're catching you up to speed on where we are. And you come into uh, the book of Matthew. So just track with me. Track with me. You, you, you get into the book of Matthew, and it opens with this incredibly huge statement, this genealogy of Jesus that really starts to connect the dots between all this stuff that happened that we just talked about in the Old Testament and Jesus himself. And so even in the first chapter of Matthew, you're just like, whoa, wait, I mean, wait a minute. Are you, are you saying that this is the guy, this is the king who was promised? This, this, through all this line, this is going to be the Messiah? Like that's, that's a very bold claim. People have gotten into a lot of trouble for making claims just like that and getting it wrong. So this is a very big deal. But then you go 
through all this stuff that Jesus said and all the things that Jesus did. And it really starts to look like, okay, he is the one. He is the fulfillment of all the things that we were talking about in the past, of all the things through history. Um, he is the one that's going to fulfill all these things. And then Jesus gets up and he gives this sermon on the mount in chapters um, 5 through 7 and starts to, to lay out his plan and what life should look like. And then he's claiming all this authority and this kingdom he's going to bring from heaven to earth. This is the God that was promised in the Old Testament. And then you get into um, later chapters in chapters uh, 8 and 9. He starts to demonstrate his authority over nature. He says, I'm going to show you that I'm God. I'm going to show you by controlling all these things in nature. And then when you get into chapters uh, 12 and 13, he runs into just all kinds of opposition. Or, or rather 13, he, he starts to give these parables that talk about what life is and, and what his kingdom will look like and how it's going to happen and gets into that a little bit more and how that's going to unfold through history. And then you come into chapters 15, 16, and 17. This is kind of like Jesus' honeymoon period. And so he's up north, and these people generally like him. They generally like what he's about and the things that he's doing. And his, his ministries on, on, on earth is kind of coming to an end. And um, all of this starts to unfold up north. And so they start to make their way back and Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's telling them, hey, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and die soon. And so his disciples are just pretty confused and don't understand that why he's doing the things that he's doing. And so they're trying to get their minds around it, and he keeps telling them, he keeps alluding to this, that he's going to die. And they're trying to work out where they fit in their relationship with Jesus. And then you get finally into Matthew chapter 17, and it opens with this transfiguration of Jesus where his full glory is shown to a few of his disciples. And, and God is there, and he's affirming him in his ministry, and then they come back down the mountain, and there's also this moment of, hey, y'all, I'm going to die soon, so thanks for reminding me of that. And so these guys' heads are just spinning and spinning and spinning, and we come back from this road trip that just takes us away from Capernaum, where Jesus has done most of his business, and we're making our way back into Capernaum, Jesus' kind of base of operations or his hometown where he's done most of his ministry up until this point. And in this, the most transcendent, incredible things that have happened, that have literally broken the, the, the laws of time and space right before Peter's eyes. And his eyes are just open for the very first time to this reality that if Jesus is who he thinks that he is, and if Jesus is who he's really saying that Jesus is, that the entire world is about to change. And, and somehow Peter is right here at the epicenter of all of this. So they come back to Capernaum, and he gets met with one of the most mundane and boring questions that if you're an adult in the room, you've been adulting hard, and, and you're very familiar with this at this point in the year. And they say... <clears throat> So about your taxes, <laughs> that's, that's seriously what the question is. And so let's, let's read this again tonight. He says, it says, when they came to Capernaum, the, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And Peter's like, yeah. And, and that's the end of the conversation. And so uh, on, on the one hand, you, I love how Matthew has framed this. You have all, you have the, the, the power and the importance of all the stuff that we just talked about up until this point. Like he's very well aware of all of that. 
And then he frames it with this very just impotent, small question of, hey, uh, about your, your taxes, just the helplessness of this question. But I think there's something bigger going on here. So look at, look at verse 25. He said, yeah. And when they came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And that's kind of cryptic. Like that, that's kind of a, a cryptic little message there. Before we get into really what Jesus is, is saying or what he's asking him, I want you to think about the, the rest of the book of Matthew. Anytime you hear a question asked, who usually asks it first? Is it Jesus or the disciples? You can talk back to me. The disciples. The disciples, they're usually the ones who are confused. They, they, they're the ones who, they'll see Jesus in public, and they'll, they'll nod their heads, and they'll say, yes, teacher, we understand. And then they'll get to back in the private setting, and they'll say, okay, Jesus, break this down for us, because I, I don't understand that parable. I don't understand what you're doing there. Please help us make this make sense so we can understand what you're doing here. And so right here in this passage, it's so easy to skip over this little line. Jesus spoke to him first. Don't, don't, don't miss that tonight. That, that's, that's a big, your ears should perk up. For those of you who are into the things that Jesus was into, your, your ears should perk up a little bit here. You want to pay attention because there's some theology coming. There, there's there's some, some theology coming here. And so we asked this question. He spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And so we are, we don't really do kings anymore, right? At least not like this. But, I mean, you've seen enough movies. You've, you've read enough books. You, you've known enough history to kind of know how kingship works. And you kind of get the gist here. You've usually got a king and he'll have a family. And uh, the king's kid is usually the next in line to, who succeeds the king. And there's a special position of honor for all of the family and, and the king's family. And there's this kind of noble leadership family style. And so, in a sense... Um, the prince is next in line to become the head of a household and, and the king of the realm. That's just the next logical sense. That's just what happened, which means that in a way, a prince already owns everything. He's next in line. He's part of the family. He's already going to succeed the king. In a way, the prince owns everything. And so I think Peter's answer here is absolutely correct. I think this is absolutely correct. He says, from others. Verse 26, and when he said, from others. And think about it, that makes sense. I mean, why would you collect a tax on your own family? I can go to, we have three beautiful kiddos, Ellie, Maddox, and Josie. I could take $5 from Ellie's piggy bank and I could go put it in Maddox's piggy bank. But at the end of the day, it all comes from dad's wallet. So it doesn't really matter too much, right? They're all going to get whatever it is they want because we're the ones who will provide for them unless it's food, then there's always a dad tax involved. Like if it's a bag of gummy bears, a third of those have to come to dad for the dad tax um, and so on and so forth. Um, amen. Um, but, if, if, I mean, think about it. You wouldn't take $100, $100 out of one drawer in your house and put it into another drawer. It just it wouldn't matter. It, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So he says, then the sons are free, or some translations would say exempt. So it seems like right here at this point, everybody's on the same page. They're all nodding. They, they get this. We're all tracking here. So keep going. Verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast the hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that 
and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, <laughs> this is a moment where you have to kind of pause and just kind of like, wait a minute. Um, pump the brakes here for a second. Let's back the truck up a little bit. Um, so you're going to fish. So gonna, whatever the first fish you fish you pull out is going to have coins in it to cover our taxes. There's a lot going on here in this moment. So two things. Let's do the simple one first, all right? Let's, let's do the simple one first. So Jesus is going to pay the tax. We know that. It's in the Bible. It's right here. It seems like he doesn't want to break any cultural laws or religious laws or civil laws. He wants to, he's going to pay the tax. and not have any problem with that. He's honoring these things. So we got that. But I think there's more going on here. And I think if we look a little bit closer, we might get a, be able to wrap our brains around it. So earlier we talked about this, this kind of churchy language of God making a people for himself, bringing a people unto himself with the call of Abram, who is later called what? Abraham, right? So Abram, who is later called Abraham, God was making this deal with him, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, um, guinea pigs too harsh of a word, uh, they were God's test case, right? So they were God's test case, and God uses them to act out all the stuff with these Hebrew people that he wants to communicate to the rest of the world as a whole. So God does that with Abram, and he does that with his people. But then we get into the New Testament, and there's this language here with Jesus who says he's carving out a family for himself. And you have to stop and think, because I thought we already had a family established back in the Old Testament who was carving, carving out for, for God, for himself, for this nation. But Jesus says, I'm carving out a, a family for myself. And he's not ditching the old family. He's not abolishing the old family. He's not getting rid of the old family, but he's making a new, broader people for himself. And, and the language here in the Old Testament starts kind of subtle, but it gets really, really loud. It starts really soft, but it gets really loud as the New Testament goes on. And it's that language that Jesus is making a brand new family that is based on faith alone, not ethnicity. And that these people who are in his family are actually sons and daughters of the one true king. And they share in this inheritance. In some way, we are adopted into his family and we share in the inheritance of God. And that's a huge promise. That is a bold promise to say that the God of the universe put on flesh, came to us, is making a new family for himself. And we're included in that, in this promise. So we see these ideas in the Old Testament play out. We see the redemption and the hope in the Old Testament play out. And you get into the language of Jesus, and it's all kind of wrapped up in this new position that people have, that people are a brand new creation in Christ. And that when you are a brand new creation in Christ, you take this position like a king and his family, a position of noble honor leadership, and that there's nothing to do with what you look like or what your gender is or what language you speak, or what you've done, or who you are, or where you came from, but it has everything to do with one thing only, and that is your relationship to the king. And so when you look at what Jesus is doing, it's this miraculous work of making a brand new family, a brand new family, and a right relationship with the king simply just means that you recognize him as your king. And so he's saying, if you do that, according to the Bible, then you're in this brand new family of faith. And that's a huge amen moment for all of us, a, a praise God moment to know that there's nothing we've done. It wasn't hey, what family we were born into. It wasn't the choices we have made or haven't made. It wasn't any of these things. It's all about the person, the work of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. And so if you think about this, 
it almost seems um, a little counterproductive here. It almost seems like these two kind of go against each other because one minute you're saying Jesus seems to be okay with this, with paying the tax, but then also it also seems like it wouldn't really make sense for him to pay the tax because it's his house. But why should he pay the temple tax if it's his house? I mean, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So he's saying, yes, I'm going to pay the tax, but also it's my house, so I shouldn't pay the tax. And he's kind of contradicting himself here. So it kind of just makes you kind of scratch your head a little bit and turn your head sideways. But it's his house. That's why if you, if you fast forward a little bit later, he goes in and he flips tables and he breaks stuff up because it's, it's his house. It's his father's house. He has every right to be there. He has ownership of it. And so there's that element, but there's also this intonation here that everyone who's in this new family of faith also has ownership of this house. You also have full access to every room in this house. And that, as a result, maybe calls into to question of how this temple tax is going to work. Why do we even pay it? And, and for time's sake, we won't get into that. But there's some verses in the Old Testament that talk about the temple tax and, and what it is, and it'll speak to that. But the bottom line is the temple is where God lives. That, that, that's where he was. That, that is absolutely where God lived, in the holy of holies, whether it was a tabernacle that was temporary in the early days or the brick-and-mortar official kind of temple that was built by Solomon and eventually got destroyed and then Herod rebuilt it, which would be, at this point in history, brand spanking new. Um, but God lives there, right? So, yeah, that's, that's kind of a big deal. But what does the Bible say about how that works now that we're in Christ? Should we pay that? Does it pay no mind to that? Well, Good question. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about the Holy Spirit. And you can read all through the book of Acts and you see the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is going to dwell in believers. And that comes really clear when you start to read through the book of Acts. So what now? If God doesn't just live in the temple and he lives in his people, what does that mean? Is the temple of God uh, just a building? Is it, only, is it only refined to just that one space, a brick-and-mortar building where God lives in one place amongst his people? Or does God live in each member of his family who's in the family of faith? I think it's clear when you look through Scripture. He lives in each of those who belong to him. And so what we have here in Matthew chapter 17 is this really sneaky a very tricky, sneaky little transitional statement between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and it ref- references back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. So if you're with us the last several weeks in this Bible study, you would have remembered this. It says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so does the value of there being a temple go away just because Jesus created a brand new family of faith? Does the value of the temple go away because God lives in each of his members of his family of faith? No. I think the principle is still the same. The principle of the temple absolutely still applies here. Here's the difference. It's just complete. That's all it is. It's just complete. So instead of going to a physical place where you have to encounter God or be in a place where you can encounter God in this vague proximity to God, we now have this absolutely unlimited, uninterrupted proximity to God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection and initiating his kingdom on this earth. That's what's true for you and for me. 
Now, I get it. All of this language, uh, all of our teenagers, you should pat yourself on the back. We don't normally go this deep. But when you get into Matthew, there's some really churchy theology-y language you can get into. So pat your back, pat yourself on the back for, for making it this far. I, 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 we don't have much time, but I thought maybe I could break it down for you in a little bit simpler way. Um, so I'm going to need some, some help real quick. Uh, Let's see. Um, Bruce, you've done everything tonight, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call on you, Bruce. Um, we'll go uh can I call on you back here in the blue shirt? Can you can can I can I use you? Yes, right there. Can I can you come up here for us? Wonderful. Okay, and then um let's see, who else do we have in here? Um hey Maximus, come on up here, buddy. Come on up here. Okay. Y'all can just stand right up here in the front. Um when I was a kid, growing up, there was this incredible machine, this, this piece of incredible human ingenuity and, and crea- creativeness, um, and it was called the claw machine. Anybody, anybody know the claw machine? I have a claw machine right here. Um, <laughs> and so I have my very own claw machine, and for purposes of this illustration, tell everybody your name. Mike. Mike, and your name? Max. Mike and Max, um, Mike, you're going to be a patron of my establishment where I purchased this brand new claw machine, and uh, these are going to be uh, your quarters here in this. Max, can you help me grab those tokens here out of there and hand those to Mr. Mike? Um, and, and for the purposes of illustration, uh, Max, you're going to be my son. So uh, <laughs> don't call me dad or anything. Just this illustration, go with it. And Max, my young son, um, these quarters are for you. I've painted them green so that I will know that they're yours. So now what I haven't told you is inside of these capsules, there's $100 in there. So feel free. Go ahead and put your token in here, Mr. Mike. Mike's a regular patron to our establishment. He's going to bring his own hard-earned money, and he's going to pay um, and try and get something to happen here at this claw machine. Now, we all know this is a giant scam, and they never, ever work. Um, but it's always that miraculous feeling of when you finally get one um, to make it happen. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Now, he has a whole stack of quarters here that he would spend the whole, all of them, trying to get one thing out of here. He would try so hard, and he would fail almost every single time. And Max over here, Max has a stack of quarters as well, but the difference is those are my quarters, and they're not going to hit my bottom line whatsoever because they're mine. So at the end of the day, when they're all done playing this claw machine game, I'm going to come back in here. I'm going to get all the quarters out of here, and I'm going to grab the green ones, and I'm going to give them back to Max. And I'm going to say, Max, go play whatever you want to play. Because you can. These are yours. They're not going to affect us anyway. You just get to have all the fun in the world, reap all the benefits of this incredible claw machine. Thank you, Max. You guys can have a seat. You're not going to win anything out of there. It's an actual scam. Get it for Mike's, Mike and Max. Thanks, guys. I don't, I don't know if you could hear that sound effect there at the end, but it's really defeating to know you didn't win anything. It just lets you, lets you have it in the worst way possible. Um, at the end of the day, I would go clean out the drawer of my claw machine, and I'd get all the green quarters out, and I'd give them right back to, back to Max. And he could go play it again, do whatever he wants. It wouldn't cost him anything. It wouldn't cost me anything. And the idea here being that Max, being my son, is part owner of this incredible, glorious machine. And so he could take all the quarters that he wants to that I've given him and play that over and over. Why would he pay for something that I have an infinite abundance of that wouldn't cost me anything or affect my bottom line in whatsoever. I can provide this for him again and again and again. And likewise, in this situation here in Matthew 
chapter 17, Jesus chose to pay the tax because the work here wasn't done yet. The work here wasn't completed yet. He was already here. He was already making his way through his plans, but the work wasn't completed yet. We were still in this process of fulfillment. But the principle of Jesus' language didn't change. He said, hey, go, go catch a fish, and this miraculous thing's going to happen. You're going to have plenty. You're going to have just enough to cover my tax and your tax. Keep everybody cool. Keep everybody calm. Pay the tax, and let me do what I came here to do. And what you see here is evidence this long-term evidence of us inching towards fulfillment. That you and me and Peter and everyone else who, else who chooses to be in this family of faith effectively has this green quarter. And we share in that. We live in this already not yet, that Jesus has already come to fulfill everything. And eventually we live in this state where we get all the eternal spiritual riches because of what he's done. The person and the work of Jesus, this promise of this completed kingdom over which Jesus reigns and rules forever. Now, that was a lot. Was that a lot? That was a lot. I'm sorry. You guys, round of applause for you guys. You guys stuck in there for the whole thing. Good job. Um, and uh, good, good, good job. Now, I promise uh, it'll be a long time before I teach on that again. Uh, and I don't know that you'll hear anybody else teach on that ever. Raise your hand if you've heard somebody teach on that passage before. A couple of you guys? Okay, great. Awesome. Well, come let me know how I did. Um, it took me a long time to, to prepare for, for tonight, and uh, I was excited for the challenge. And um, God's word is so good. All of it's God-breathed, and, uh, man, it's so good for us. So let's pray to that end tonight. And then, uh, students, you'll be dismissed to go back to the student center where we're going to have a whole bunch of pizza for you. And sorry, adults, you, you, you can't come with us, but um, let's pray. God, thank you for tonight, and uh, thank you for loving us like you do. Thank you for your word that is so good for us and just points us to you in all things. Um, thank you for your grace and for your love. Thank you that you reign and rule over all things and that we are included in your family, that, that we have the, the, the marked quarters, that, that, that we get to share in your inheritance, God, that this is all yours. And because of your great mercy and love and goodness towards us, uh, we get to share in that with you. And so, God, we long for the day we will come back for us. And um, until that time, we, we, we wait for you, God. We actively wait for you. So, Lord, thank you for this place. I pray for these teenagers. You'll give them boldness on their campus. Help them to be dangerous disciples for you. God, help them to live like they know this truth, um, that you forever change them, that they have the green quarters. They share in your inheritance, God, and, and they could be difference makers because of who you are in them. Pray for these adults as they go back to work and to their families tonight and uh, later this week. And Lord, would you just work in them and move in their life like only you can. Bless them in their marriages, in their house. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.